On this episode of AvTalk, we get ready for a busy week of travel, and the final report on Air India Express Flight 1344 leaves us incredulous. Plus, there's a new freighter in town. Hello, and welcome to episode 129 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. That was a, a nice ramp up you had today. I feel like it was a little longer than usual. Yeah, I, I want to feel like I want to see how long I can draw it out. Like, can we go to like 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30? I, I want to yodel it next time. I, I mean, I've been known to never yodel, uh, but I will do my very best Excellent. to learn how to do that and begin some type of yodeling class in order to by next week, have that accomplished just for you, Jason. Fantastic. That's what people will get in lieu of me being on that episode. If any of our listeners teach a yodeling class, please email us at podcast at fr24.com. But how are you, uh, how, how are you doing, sir? Status unchanged from last week. Excellent. I yeah. think. I can't remember yeah. how you were last week, but, but it, you uh, sound well. It doesn't well. matter. It doesn't you, matter. You sound well. I'm getting excited for this weekend. Uh, we're both off to... LA this weekend. You are headed there tomorrow. That's right. Thursday. I leave Friday afternoon now, having changed my flight, I think 612 times. Yeah. But, thankfully, but yeah, yeah. thankfully, none of my flights changed substantially. I, I think uh, my flight my flight to LA actually got shorter by 10 minutes somehow. I'm, I'm not sure how that works. But uh, United was very worried about that and offered to let me change or cancel my flight for, for no fee because, you know, getting in 10 minutes earlier than expected is, is real bad news. My, my original flight had a similar issue, but it was, it was five minutes later. And so they, they were going to allow me to change my flight as well. It was getting in five minutes. I didn't even leave at a different time. It just got in five minutes. The, the magic of schedule padding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, my, my flights are, are all over the place and have changed very much because instead of just going uh, for a quick weekend to LA and back, I am now headed to LA for the weekend for Dorkfest and, and I hope to see many of you. And then next week, leaving Sunday directly from LA, I'm headed over to Airbus Summit in Toulouse. And I'm really looking forward to, to being over there and spending a couple days with folks who are working on kind of the, the future of, of aviation, at least as far as Airbus sees it, and how electric propulsion systems are going to play a role, especially in regional and kind of urban mobility. And then what is hydrogen going to be? Airbus has kind of decided that that is their that is their push. Uh, hydrogen is going to be their kind of long-haul propulsion system. So it's going to be interesting to hear in-depth from folks who are working on that. But there's also a lot of other things going on, talking about sustainable aviation fuel, which is very hot right now, but no one really knows how it's all going to work. So I'm looking forward to learning a lot about what is actually going to happen as far as sustainable aviation fuel is concerned, what's, what's actually possible and not just we're going to do X by Y date and everyone goes, okay, that sounds great. And then it never happens. So this, this event 
will hopefully lead to a lot more concrete answers about some of the thornier questions as far as the the future of aviation and can it truly be made sustainable. Uh, so that'll be a very interesting uh, few days in Toulouse. I'm, I'm really looking forward That's to that. That's great. You're off to hear about hopefully what is the future of aviation and I will check out a you know 20 something year old 767 and report on the the history of aviation by sitting in one <laughs> for 5 hours i mean that that's important i mean i will also be doing some some historical aviating I guess with the the seven five seven three hundred that I'm going to be sitting in the very I mean the third to last row on Friday. Ah, oh, you so, beat me. I'm in the the fourth to last row ooh. of the seven six. Currently, yes, but but by design, I, which is somehow you know smart. the first row of regular economy. So okay, <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, but yeah, so so looking forward to that. I will be there as well as our, our colleague Gabriel. We'll be there. He's he's going to be shooting a lot of video. We'll do a special episode of the podcast. Hopefully, we'll have some really good interviews throughout the week. And then uh, Thursday, we're going to do something special in Toulouse. So I'm really looking forward to that as well. So that'll be kind of a uh, a second look at things. So that, that'll be a bit more interesting than just the sustainable aviation stuff. So I'm really looking forward to that. And it should be a very busy week for the first time in, well, I don't know. Two 18, years? 19 months. Yeah, two. I mean, really two years. In Toulouse, yeah. don't forget to say hello to our favorite uh, eatery establishment. I'm very jealous that you might have the chance to go, and I hope you're still open. I, I will report back. Please, as do. crazy as things have been. So, so we we've got that coming up. That's kind of all of the future stuff. Let us get to what has happened this week. First things first, we've got a PBS Frontline co-produced with the New York Times 737 Max documentary. Uh, still working my way through it because such is life. But it's a real interesting look so far at what led to the 737 Max and then how the forces that led to the 737 Max, as opposed to a clean sheet body aircraft by Boeing, expressed themselves in all of these push-pull stretch, smush pressures, uh, both engineering-wise and business-wise, that led to the two crashes and, and Boeing's response to that. So it's very interesting so far. It's kind of, um, you know, looking at it in hindsight, of course, this was a possibility. You know, everything that we've learned over the past two and a half, three years, of course, this was a, a possibility. And, and the documentary really gets into that. So, so, so far, so good. So I, I give it a uh, go check it out, uh, but I can't really give it a, a review quite yet. And I have not had the chance to watch it yet. So I'm going to have to take Ian's recommendation here. I'll get to it at some point. Haven't had there the you go. You, you can watch it on your, uh, on your flight to, to Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Mm-mm, no. Maybe not. I used to watch a lot of air crash investigation on JetBlue flights because that was for some reason the only thing that was on basic cable whenever I flew. That's right. That's right. Yeah. They, they, that, was always, uh, that was always an option, it seemed like. Speaking of air crash investigation, the accident report, the final report for the Air India Express flight that suffered a runway overrun in uh, in India landing in, uh, in Koskode from Dubai. Uh, this was Air India Express Flight 1344. That final report came out 
was issued. The report's dated at the end of last month, but the uh, the publication was was just earlier this week, and it details. I mean, like every every incident we talk about, there's you know the, the Swiss cheese model where the holes have to line up just right so that things go wrong. And this was just one thing after another. The the report details the very poor landing weather conditions, thunderstorms, heavy rain, high winds, crosswinds, tailwinds, just not not great at all. Everything bad that you'd find in a textbook about how not to land was present, it seemed like. Exactly. The the windshield wiper broke on the uh, on the captain's side and the captain was the pilot flying so so that takes uh, away uh, a slight visual component there they they made their first approach then they they did a go around on the first approach and then they uh, they wanted to come back uh, and instead of landing on uh, runway 28 they switched to runway 10 that ended up having a tailwind component of slightly more than 14 knots, crosswind component of six knots. Uh, the speed began increasing uh, on this second and fateful approach. Then the aircraft passed the runway threshold, uh, and the numbers beyond the runway threshold kept increasing as the as the uh, first officer became more concerned. 2,500 feet beyond the threshold. And the the runway the runway touchdown zone is, is three thousand feet from from the threshold from the beginning of the threshold, uh, so they're nearing the end. Just a few seconds before the aircraft touches down, five seconds before the aircraft touches down, they they lower the nose and the thrust is finally reduced. Three seconds before touchdown, the pilot monitoring. So this is the the first officer, and I'll quote the report directly here. Again, tried to catch the attention of the pilot flying by giving a feeble, uncomfortable call. Captain, when the aircraft had crossed the end of the touchdown zone, 3,600 feet beyond the threshold, during this time, the engine thrust finally went down to idle. The aircraft crossed 4,200 feet beyond the threshold. And then the the first officer gave a go-around call. The captain ignored it. So there was no response whatsoever. The, the cockpit voice recorder records no response whatsoever. During the landing flare, aircraft floats. They're already beyond the touchdown zone. It increases the landing. The aircraft touched down at 4,438 feet on the 8,858-foot long runway. So it was raining hard. It was wet at the time of the runway. They landed more than half the way down the runway. With a tailwind and a crosswind. And a broken windshield wiper. And a broken windshield wiper after the first officer had suggested feebly and uncomfortably and then called more forcefully, I I guess is what the report is indicating, uh, for a go-around didn't happen they landed and then they went off the end of the runway yeah a lot going on there and unfortunately i believe it was what's the official number that 20 people died plus the two pilots or was it 20 i think it was actually 20 including the two pilots what i'm reading says at least 20 people i'm not sure why it would be worded like that 
a year later, but a, a lot went wrong here. A breakdown in basic flying, CRM, certainly the, the first officer here did not assert any uh, any really meaningful attempt to get the captain's attention or take control of the aircraft and, and stop that very poor landing from happening. And then I'm reading from Flight Global that somehow, against seemingly all logic, the uh, rescue crews at this particular airport were not familiar with the 737-800. And after the overrun, which was pretty dramatic since this runway is on uh, kind of an embankment or like a plateau on the top of a hill and it ran down the top of that hill, but they yeah. weren't able to extract the the pilots from the wreckage for an hour because somehow they weren't familiar with the 737, which just is absolutely baffling. So every, yeah. everything went wrong in the air and on the ground, like how the hell is that possible? I, I do not. So what's, what's really interesting here, and, and I forgot to mention this in the setup to the approach, is that air traffic control was so concerned about the weather that they issued a weather warning, which basically says, I mean, it, it's really bad here. It's so bad. They, the, the ARF trucks were already stationed at critical points along the runway in anticipation of a possible runway overrun. Huh. That uh, It's not great, especially seeing the topography of that runway, where a runway overrun almost certainly means catastrophic damage and loss of life. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so, it, it not to put too fine a point on it, but it gets worse. After the aircraft landed, so after, the weight, after there's weight on wheels, the the thrust reversers were deployed before they could become operational. They were stowed. And the captain let off the brakes a little bit. Then they were deployed for a second time, 15 seconds after they touched down. When the aircraft was near the end of the runway. Huh. <laughs> they had airspeed of of 60 knots at the end of the at the end of the runway beyond the at the end of the paved portion of the the runway area it, I, I if you're if you're writing a textbook and, and want to cite an example where literally everything goes wrong i can't think of a better example they went off so i mean it, this isn't it's a plateaued runway but the embankment it's not a gradual slope. No, it is quite dramatic. The aircraft came to rest 110 feet below the runway elevation and had impacted the perimeter road at a ground speed of 42 knots. I have, not, I have nothing to add to that. It's just everything that could yeah. have gone wrong went wrong here. 21 fatalities, including both pilots. So the two pilots and 19 passengers were killed 76 people were injured including one of including one of the flight attendants uh, had serious injuries 34 people including one crew member had minor injuries and miraculously i mean it, we'll put a link to the, of the to the report in the show notes because it includes uh, photos and all of the figures and things from from the flight but miraculously 59 people had no injuries whatsoever that's crazy lucky yeah, I just as if the the runway overrun wasn't bad enough. 
then the, the aircraft goes 110 feet down a steep embankment. And, and yeah, it and breaks into three parts. And somehow it's just everything that could have gone wrong did. And and the, the I've, I've been through the report a couple times just because I wanted to make sure that what I was reading was in fact, you know, the sequence of events. And, and I just get to the point where I'm like, okay, at what point were we, were we not considering maybe we should fly somewhere else? Maybe we should land somewhere else. Maybe we should try this again later. Yeah. If, uh, if the airport is rolling emergency vehicles in preparation of your what should be totally normal landing, you probably shouldn't be landing there, is my guess. That would be my indication. Like if, again, I'm not a, uh, neither Jason nor I are commercially rated pilots. That's not who we are. But, but that's just common sense. Like we, if you're I doing something like so can, risky, <laughs> I feel like we can extrapolate on this. And 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 certainly there are human factors that that influence people's decision making in a situation. And and we are not in that situation. And and therefore, you know, there there are other factors. However, generally speaking, like Jason said before, if you're going to write a textbook about what not to do in certain situations, I, I feel like this ranks high in um, in textbookness yeah i i mean i just feel bad for the the you know the staff at the airport of the air traffic controllers that they obviously had a feeling that something bad was going to be happening they they rolled the equipment and anticipation of something bad happening and lo and behold it happened um so that's that's not a good omen not for this episode, but for for a future episode, I, I want to talk to someone who who designs or or engineers airports because I have questions about these tabletop runways. Because we've seen this here in in India, we've seen it in Turkey a few times, where you know these tabletop runways and and there's the the airport in South America. Or Central America is it? Is it Honduras? I think that so. The, that, the that's, is that where the American seven five had that incident? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and and somebody feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, or add to the list if you if you can think of another example where where these these tabletop runways do not lead to to good results when there is an incident, almost by design. It, it will end worse than if it wasn't a tabletop runway. So, so yeah. why are why are these airports constructed in the first place? I mean, there's got to be a good reason to do it. Yeah, and I'm I'm going off memory here from over a year ago at this point, but I know that they had actually restricted wide body aircraft from operating in and out of this airport because of the the tabletop nature of this runway, and that it just wasn't long enough, and that they had planned to build a a runway safety area or extend what was already there, and it just it didn't happen. Reading Wikipedia, so grain of salt here, but as per November 2020, the airport does not have the recommended runway safety area or any EMAS at the end of the runway, which it's not great considering the danger of an overrun as proven here. It seems like the least they could do is put some EMAS there. And who knows? It may have prevented anything, any loss of life in this case. And yeah. it's kind of unbelievable that a tabletop runway isn't required to have EMAS, no matter how long the runway might be. You would think that that would be one of the things where they could, how could we, you know, if we're going to build the, the runway like this, how could we make the airport safer? 
And as it turns out, we can put in an EMAS and that would increase the level of safety, if just a little bit. EMAS for for those, I guess, new to the podcast or, or listening and not holding your aviation acronym dictionaries with you at this time, Engineered Materials Arresting System. It's basically puffy concrete. The crunchy stuff. Uh, at the end it's, of the runway. it's the crunchy stuff at the end of the runway. It's it's a it's a crushable concrete that can bear. Uh, I think I, I forget. You can drive a car on it basically, but an airplane, which is much heavier, sinks into it, and, and then it uh, it looks like um, it looks like you've driven through a cake or something like a like a. It's kind of like a runaway truck ramp on a highway. Similar, yeah, uh, yeah, same same idea with a fun concrete, engineered concrete material. But it, we'll we'll leave this discussion here. And if anyone has any thoughts on uh, this particular incident uh, after reading the report, please uh, absolutely do email us at podcast.fr24.com because I, I think I think this is a really good report to read and see kind of a A to B to C. Very clear, you know, all the whole way through. Jason, let's stay in India, but this time go with some what we'll call good news. And it looks like with with all all things going in the right direction, Jet Airways may make a return next year. And you know how I know it's happening for real, Ian? Go on. They followed me on Twitter. So that's how I know they're really coming back. <laughs> Uh, of course. I, I, I mean, don't know where yeah. earlier this week, followed by Jet Airways. So, you know, that that tells me they mean business. I've got uh, I've got nothing to I provide have no a counterpoint idea to that. What will be in their fleet or where they will be flying or when they'll be doing that, but I'm taking it for real now. Great. So so keeping an eye on that one and we will uh, we'll see how things go. Maybe we'll be flying a, a Jet Airways flight next year. Sure. Who knows? Sure, sure. Looks like they have a couple of uh, 777s left in their fleet, which is nice. Six. So, okay. Great. We'll, we'll take what we can get. So, let's talk about Alitalia. Hey. Because things are things are getting interesting. We're a month out. It's today's September fifteenth. Oh, October, one month from Doomsday for Alitalia. One, one month from from the end uh, of Alitalia. And earlier this week, or, or late last week, the European Competition Tribunal said that Italy can invest. One and a half billion dollars, uh, I think it's 1.4 billion euros, into ITA, which is the other company that is not Alitalia in any way, shape, or form, but could be if they bid for Alitalia, but we'll get there in just a second. Because they ruled that the new company is in fact new and is not liable for the illegal state aid that the Europeans competition ruled illegal the 900 million euros that the state of Italy gave to Alitalia to try and keep them afloat, which they said, no, you can't do that. But they don't have to repay it because they're in fact a new company somehow. So it's a new company using the uh, same employees, the same airports, the same aircraft, uh, the same destinations. So yeah, that that seems new to me. Yeah. So so 2017- And the same name. 
<laughs> no, but not not maybe maybe we don't uh, know that for sure. Sure, I'm getting to that part. Uh, European Commission says that the the state loans that Alitalia illegally received constitutes illegal state aid, but ITA is not the economic successor to Alitalia. So they don't have to pay that back, which means that ITA can take $1.5 billion over the next three years from the Italian government because it's an investment and not a loan. I don't understand. I will tell you, loves investments. Just ask Eddie Had. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't really, I don't really understand the the. It's this seems like you're one not, of those things we're like, not supposed to understand it because it, it doesn't make yeah, sense. We're we're working back. So so the commission's ruling that this is not an economic successor was actually very interesting. It's not an economic successor because it will have fewer flights. Fewer destinations, and they're actually. <laughs> this was one of the reasonings, and I love this one. They're actually going to try and make money, and that was one of the reasons in that this industry. Was, that was one of the reasons that it's not an economic successor to Alitalia. Is that this ITA is actually going to try and make money? Okay, I mean that's a great reason to run a business is, is to make money. That's generally the goal. But when was the last time Alitalia did that? But well, but but that's the point. I think uh, is that that ITA is actually going to try and make money, versus uh, Alitalia, which may have may or may not have been trying. Um, mm. I, I think that was the that was the the clarification, which I, I thought was just wonderful. Yeah, good luck. The the other thing the other thing that they mentioned, and this is this is an interesting one to me, is that ITA is not going to be allowed to bid for. Many is not going to be allowed to take over the non-aviation businesses from Alitalia. Those are going to be sold off in competitive tenders. However, if they competitively tender them, then it's, uh, it could all come back to them eventually. There's also the fact that they won't be able to get the loyalty program, which I think is one of the, one of the, big, um, one of the big factors here. Yeah, those uh, so, are so apparently quite valuable since pretty much every U.S. major U.S. airline leveraged that during COVID to basically get a huge check. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll take a huge check as well if anyone wants to send one yeah. to me uh, as as well. So yeah, th- this is going to be a really interesting one to see. The big thing, like Jason mentioned, the big thing is going to be what is the tender for the brand and how quickly does ITA take that over? Do we know what what the bidding has been like for the Alitalia brand name at this point? Do we know if anyone else has actually bid on it? I don't know if anyone else has bid on it. I don't even know if they're, if the bidding is out because I don't think that's been opened for bidding yet. ITA has already said it's going to bid for that. And I would assume that uh, being a Chicagoan, I know that uh, you can have an open and transparent bid. And have only one available vendor, depending on how you structure the bid. So, so I have a feeling that that might be how things work out. If only, it's not like that, might be. I, I would like to bid on it. We can rename this the the Alitalia Podcast, and no one can stop us. I know that that's absolutely true. 
we we could do that and i would certainly bid upwards of a euro i'm in for two euros i probably right. have some somewhere some coins I, yeah I i've got up. some i should probably dig those out for next week but uh so we'll, we'll call it five euro and see uh see where we go from there Okay. Jason, shall we take a quick break and then come back and talk about some uh, some new paint uh, and some new planes? Yep. Yeah? All right. Yep, yep. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It is time for one of my favorite segments called, Ooh, That's Pretty. Ooh, what's pretty today? A uh, couple things. Things with wings. We've got some some special liveries, uh, some aircraft. We'll start with my least favorite, which is the sustainability themed livery from British Airways Golf Tango Tango November Alpha, an A320 painted in what is charitably be described as blue. Mm, because green washing comes in blue now. It's uh, it's technically called their Better World livery, uh, and uh, it's I guess I guess just it's uninspired. I mean, if you're gonna go for it, go for it. Like really, you know, kind of lean into it. But this is it's just kind of muted. It's muted. It's 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 muted. It's uninspired. They could have done a better job. Go back and do it again. And uh, yeah, just bring back the doves. Just there you go. Problem solved. In more exciting livery news, uh, Saudi is celebrating its 75th anniversary, and as such, they have painted two special liveries. They've got a 787, which is H-Z-A-R-E, in a 75th livery, which looks nice, but... But. This is a big but. But they have, uh, or actually, it's more of an and. They've got H-Z-A-K-2-8, in a retro livery, which just it looks real sharp. Yeah, the uh, seven eight ten has an interesting tail. I'll, I'll say that. I'm not going to speak which way or the other about who they put on the tail. So I'm just going to ignore that aircraft entirely and just only look at the triple seven, which looks freaking phenomenal. I think it's the 1973 era livery with the. Uh, green and blue cheat line and the green tail with a, a golden 75 icon up front. It is fantastic looking and they should make all of their airplanes look like that. <laughs> yeah, it, it looks uh, it looks very nice. It's got that uh, that just highlighter green in, uh, on the on the cheat line is just uh, very, very good looking. I mean, does it look like that in reality or did they crank the saturation up? on this photo. I hope it actually looks like that. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the photo on jet photos and, uh, it's a night shot and you can tell it's that. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, uh, uh, I would, I hope to see that at JFK. I'm sure it it pops in. I recognize that registration number, so I'm sure I'll see it at some point, but it is a, it's a looker. So go, go check those out. We'll put uh, links in the show notes to, to the tracking and they, they should be back in, in service shortly. The good news as far as traffic is concerned, flight traffic globally, is that things after kind of an, a, a weird August lull when everyone, the Delta variant kind of threw everybody for a loop, things are slightly recovering now that the, the new 
new restrictions are in place, new testing protocols, new this, new that. We're you know, taking a step backward as far as COVID restrictions are concerned, or we're taking a step in a different direction, depending on which airline or, or country you're talking about. But China had just an awful August. Flights were down 38% from July, and passenger traffic was down 63%. Yikes. And the, the traffic numbers, the passenger traffic numbers, uh, according to the Civil Aviation Agency of China. And just, just some really, really uh, dismal numbers. That said, looking at the, the graph as far as the flight numbers are concerned, that the average has recovered to to an early August average as far as flight numbers are concerned. So hopefully the passenger numbers will recover in due course as well, because that was just just a, a huge hit for the for the month of August as, as a lot of uh, places went into lockdowns and, and flights were reduced and, and mobility severely decreased. Definitely, yeah, definitely keeping an eye on that one. Looking at some of the other numbers that we've seen come out in the past week or so, in Europe, a lot of the low-cost carriers are are almost back to where they were in 2019, down things like 8 or 7 or 10%, depending on which kind of carrier you're looking at and, and which benchmark you're using. So, you know, things recovering here and there. But, but as we've talked about for the past, oh, I don't know, 18 months, the recovery is uneven. It's going to take longer in some places. It's going to be shorter in some places. And, and I don't think we, we, as yet, because of the, the latest kind of curveball from, from the Delta variant, have a handle on which way those are going to go and, and where it's going to come from. So we continue to watch and, and hope for the best. We've got, let's see, a couple more things. Breeze Airways is up their A220 order. So there you go, Jason. Good for you. Fantastic. I don't know why it's good for me, but you get to fly. They don't fly anywhere near me. They don't fly anywhere near me. I mean, you kind of live closer to the East Coast than I do. Yeah, but the closest city they fly to is Hartford, like north of Hartford. It's like a three-hour train ride each way. It's uh, you could fly to Bradley quicker than I could take a train to get to Bradley. <laughs> um, I don't even think that's a joke. But uh, apparently, they had actually ordered these twenty. A220s quite a while ago, and they were right, undisclosed right. customer, yes. and now it is disclosed, and they have bumped their total orders up to 80, all of the 300 variant, I believe. So that's a lot of A220s. I'm going to start an airline called Undisclosed Customer Airlines. And so you can just claim all of the orders. Exactly. Is it exactly. like the person that tried to change their license plate to null so that when uh, – they tried to do when they like, went through the it was a congestion pricing or the toll exactly that when the system screwed up and try it it couldn't figure out who it was and they didn't get a ticket so you just want to kind of like do that and and just take everyone every undisclosed customer's airplanes exactly exactly oh perfect I'm sure what could what could possibly go wrong yep yep that that's it's like, it's definitely like oil a thing traders, that would work yeah it's like when oil traders screw up and then have to actually take delivery uh, I love those stories yeah. Uh, so last but not least, last uh, episode we, we had uh, – no, two episodes ago, we had Gavin Werbelov on to talk about whatever Eastern Airlines was up to. And we're still not really sure what they're up to, but we'll figure it out eventually. Now comes a story of a new uh, freighter conversion group that is actually doing freighter conversions 
on 777s. These are these are going to be full freight door floor put pallets, put uh, ULDs in it, uh, have fun, knock yourself out. Make them real. Converted 777-200LRs and converted 777-300ERs. That'll so, be fun. That'll be interesting. And they are called Mammoth. Mammoth Freighters. Mammoth. Uh, so, so if you convert, I guess if you convert a 777-200LR, it'll be a 777-200LRMF. So yeah, that'll be cool. We we know those two hundred LRs are actually the uh, prior Delta two hundred LRs that have been sitting around doing nothing since they for some reason retired them last year. They've painted them in in mammoth livery, but it is very clear that these are the X Delta triple seven two hundred LRs, which will become freighters. Who knew? They uh, they live on as well. They should. They're good yes. airplanes, Brad. But a triple seven three hundred ER true freighter—that's going to be a sight to see. Yeah. They say it carries fourteen percent more volume than a seven four seven four hundred F, eighty one percent more than a seven six three hundred BCF, and forty three percent more than an MD eleven freighter. So that's uh, that's a lot of volume. Yeah. So they'll they'll be. I guess it'll be the, the second conversion house for the triple seven three hundred ER coming after the 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 GCAS big twin collaboration with uh, IAI. So, we finally have airplanes with interesting names again. I didn't see it coming from the freighter side, but between Big Twin and Mammoth, we've got uh, we've got some interesting aircraft names once again. I like it. I like yeah. it a lot. I'm going to go think about packing or, or threaten to think about packing because uh, my flight's not for a couple of days, but you, you should go start packing because you leave uh, tomorrow. I am doing laundry as we speak. Excellent. Jason, I will see you in a couple of days. Everyone else, we will talk to you next week. Jason is going to have the week off because we'll have a full episode on the Airbus Summit with hopefully some great content. And then we'll hear, we'll meet back here for a normal episode the following week uh, to uh, to recap everything. But we'll probably record a, a segment or two for while we're out in Los Angeles, we'll just have to figure out how we're going to get those out so we can uh, figure that out in a little bit. Maybe but, we'll get uh, a special yeah. episode out, a special Maybe short. Maybe we'll get a special episode. A, a spe- Ooh, a short. I like that. A short. Yeah, just shorts. like YouTube's doing. Avtalk shorts. It'll there be uh, 5% of the content for 100% of the price. <laughs> Which is free. Free, free, free. If anyone's paying for this podcast, please yeah, stop doing that. Yeah, you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, we uh, we come to you. We come to your ears free of charge. And on that note, episode one hundred and twenty-nine in the books, because I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rubinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.